Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 53, and reading to the end of the chapter. Mark 14, beginning at verse 53. We've been going through Mark this year, and a few weeks ago we uh, said we're going to jump over several of the chapters of Mark so we can focus our attention during this Lenten season on some of the events, some of the journey that Jesus went through in his suffering, and then after Easter we'll come back to the rest of Mark. And so we continue on. We started at the beginning of Mark 14, where Jesus was anointed for his burial by Mary and Bethany. And then Jesus and his disciples went to to Jerusalem, to the upper room, and and there they uh, celebrated the Passover, the Feast of Passover together, the Last Supper, and Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. We actually didn't look at that. We're holding that passage for Good Friday when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we'll talk about it then. And then after that, Jesus and his disciples made their way down Mount Zion and then back through the valley and up again Mount Mount of Olives on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Along the way, Jesus told his disciples, you're all going to fall away. And Peter, being as bold and brash as he usually was, said, I won't. Even if all these other flunkies do, I'm not going to. And uh, Jesus said, well, in fact, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. Well, they got to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed before his three, uh, the three men of the inner circle of his apostles, Peter, James, and John, uh, and offered himself finally to drink the cup according to God's will. As soon as that prayer was done and they got up, uh, made their way back to the beginning or to the uh, outside of the, or the courtyard of the, the garden, uh, Jesus said, I, I see my betrayer coming. And uh, he's betrayed by Judas with a kiss and then arrested by a posse from the, probably from the temple guard and uh, is going now to be brought to Jeruse- back into the city of Jerusalem, but not to the normal place where the Sanhedrin would have gathered. That would have been the, the temple, the royal stoa of the temple, Uh, But uh, it's in the middle of the night, and this is one of many illegalities uh, in this trial of Jesus having it at night and having it uh, in the high priest's house instead. So that's where we pick up our story. Chapter 14, verse 53, we'll read to the end of the chapter as we explore two rocks. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed them at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? The son of the blessed one. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one. 
and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and he went out to the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow's one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near Peter said, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, probably catching his accent. He began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. We conclude our reading at that point. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, as we find ourselves reflecting, meditating on your suffering, suffering that even included the, the betrayal and the denial of some of your disciples, we pray that we might learn from it how we face suffering but that we might also learn from it our, our place too, that we're really no better than, than Peter or Judas or, or any of the others who have, who have fallen away in their following of you. But we, we thank you for your love and grace and forgiveness. We pray now that as we uh, study this passage and the contrast that Mark sets up, that we might learn from it for, for our own benefit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we study the Gospel of Mark, on occasion we see the great skill with which he weaves together the events of Jesus' life to make his point. Writing to a suffering church in Rome, Mark pays special attention to these scenes at the high priest's house. Here he contrasts the failure of, of one man, Peter, with the steadiness of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, in order to teach the early church what was necessary for living in a hostile world. It's a contrast between two rocks. Christ the rock, the spiritual rock that accompanied Israel in the wilderness, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, who is now the foundation rock, the cornerstone of the church. Christ the rock remains unmoved. But then there's also Peter, Petros, rock, so named by Christ. And he, for the moment, is crumbling under the pressures of being identified as one of Christ's followers. It's rather interesting that he would be named rock when we consider all the times that, that he fails. Frederick Buechner writes about Peter's calling and his new name. The first time Jesus laid eyes on him, he took one good look and said, so you're Simon, son of John. And then said from that time on, he'd call him Cephas, which is Aramaic for Peter, which is Greek for rock. 
A rock isn't the prettiest thing in the creation or the fanciest or the smartest. And if it gets rolling in the wrong direction, watch out. But there's no nonsense about a rock. And once it settles down, it's pretty much there to stay. There's not a lot you can do to change a rock or, or crack it or get under its skin. And barring earthquakes, you can depend on it about as much as you can depend on anything. So Jesus called him the rock, and it stuck with him the rest of his life. Peter the rock. He could stop fishing for fish, Jesus told him. He'd been promoted. But now that rock is about to crack. It's already past midnight, but at least a few of the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, came flocking by tor torchlight from every part of Jerusalem and took their places in an elevated semicircle around Jesus. To the left and right, court clerks were ready with quills in hand. Kent Hughes describes the scene. Presiding was Joseph Caiaphas, high priest and president of the Sanhedrin. He was an unusually powerful high priest who had served for 19 years, far beyond the average term of four years. His surname, Caiaphas, or Inquisitor, fit him well as he was now presiding over the most famous or infamous inquisition in history. Though the assembly had all the trappings of a legal proceeding, it was not legal. For according to their own rules, it was not to make final judgments at night, nor was it to do so outside its sacred chambers in the temple, nor was a capital offense to be determined at Passover, to name just a few illegalities. Nevertheless, they began the charade, looking for the first for the unanimous evidence from two witnesses, which was necessary for conviction of a capital offense. Well, meanwhile, as they're gathering, Peter has returned to the scene, entering Caiaphas's courtyard unnoticed. To his credit, he was attempting to be true to his boast to follow Jesus wherever he was taken. He entered the courtyard at great risk, not only as one of Jesus' followers, but he's also the one who happened to cut off the ear of Melchus, who happened to work there as the high priest's servant. Peter is warming himself at the fire in the courtyard as the trial begins. Mark has set the stage for a brilliant contrast between two rocks. What can we learn from it? Well, first there is Christ, the solid rock. The Supreme Court was hearing its testimony, which revolved around Jesus' earlier statement, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews thought he was referring to Herod's temple, when actually he was just talking about the destruction and raising of his own body. But a threat against the temple was punishable by death. Even though they had the best witnesses money could buy, their testimonies were contradictory. The proceedings were getting nowhere. There was no evidence, and even the false testimonies failed. Jesus hadn't said a word, and he was winning the trial. Embarrassed and furious, Caiaphas, the high priest, approached Jesus. Aren't you going to answer? Aren't you going to defend yourself? But Jesus was silent, refusing to dignify the false testimony with a response. A reminder of the prophecy in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, 
Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers was silent, so he did not open his mouth. Well, Caiaphas was at wit's end. Now, Matthew notes in his account that at this point, Caiaphas put Jesus under oath before the living God when he asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, in essence, Caiaphas is asking two questions, really. Are you the Messiah, the Christ, the one that we were awaiting, and are you the Son of God? Understand that these were two different things in Jewish minds. He probably picked those out because those were some of the things Jesus was saying about himself or others were saying about Jesus. And now Jesus really didn't have to answer, even though he's put under oath. But now was the chosen time. I am, he said, once again using the name of the God of Israel. And then he added to his confession a warning, alluding to three Old Testament passages about the Messiah to tell them that he was their coming judge. Isaiah 52, verse 8, Psalm 110, verse 1, and Daniel 7, verse 13 are scrunched together, bits and pieces, in verse 62. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven. This was a picture in all three of those uh, places of, of God's f- final judgment of his people. The Lord sitting on the throne and judging all peoples. And in essence, Jesus is saying with this warning, with these quotations, you're judging me, but one day I will come back and judge you eternally. At this, Caiaphas tore his robe and in so doing rendered his verdict because that was the way you rendered your verdict. Guilty! There had been no case against Jesus, but now Jesus had given them one. Blasphemy. Calling himself by the holy name of the God of Israel, saying he was the fulfillment of prophecy as God the judge. And at that point, all of them condemned him to death. And then, interestingly, abused him in various ways. They spit at him and they, they beat him. Could you, can you see our Supreme Court justices doing that to, to uh, someone who's on trial? Amazing, the hatred that's going on there. But Jesus the rock never cracked. How did Jesus do it? He stood rock-like before the Sanhedrin, later before Pilate, Herod, the cross, because he did not rely on himself, but he relied on his Father, the one who he had prayed to in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is an example for all, us all of God-dependence versus self-dependence. God-dependence versus self-dependence. And speaking of self-dependence, we come to the other rock, Peter. The three denials are rather familiar territory for us and certainly a nightmare for the apostle to whom Jesus had said, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, Peter's confession, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. 
But now Peter the Rock had cracked, had failed. Earlier, at the Last Supper, Jesus said he had to go where none could follow him, meaning the cross. And, and Peter, in his typical rocky temperament, said, to quote Frederick Beekner, I'll lay down my life for you. And then Jesus said to him the hardest thing Peter had ever heard him say, listen, listen, he said, the cock won't crow till you betrayed me three times. And that's the way it was, of course. Peter sitting there in the high priest's courtyard, keeping warm by the fire, well, inside, the ghastly interrogation was in process. And then the girl coming up to ask him three times if he wasn't one of them. And his replying each time that she didn't know what, he didn't know what in God's name she was talking about. And then the old cock's waddles, trembling scarlet, as up over the horizon it squawked the rising sun and the tears running down Peter's face like rain down a rock. End quote. Why did Peter fail? While Jesus succeeded, there's probably a lot of reasons, but I think one of the key reasons is he was self-dependent. He was self-dependent, not God-dependent. Self-dependence was part of his personality. Peter was always the, the spokesman, the first to speak, the first to act. He was he's the only disciple who would talk back to Jesus. And he had boldly pledged his allegiance to Jesus without thought of the cost. And it became his downfall. As Jesus earlier warned him, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Now we know the rest of the story. Peter was restored, of course, forgiven by Jesus. And he was given not only new life, but a new insight on being a follower of Jesus. But it came through testing, as it often does for us. It's a story about a shop a customer who asked a shopkeeper, what makes this set of china so much more expensive than that one over there? They, they look almost the same. And the reply was, well, the less expensive set was put through the, the fire, put through the kiln only once, while the costlier set had to be put through twice, once for its background and a second time for its intricate design. A similar thing is true for a Christian's faith. If we want God's best, we must sometimes go through the furnace of testing, maybe more than once, until we fully display God's intended design in our life. Peter went through that furnace, and he came out sharing a new insight on Jesus Christ and on our relationship with him. In 1 Peter 2, it's a familiar passage, but let me read it again because You'll note here that Peter now makes use of this familiar image of the rock or the stone. He says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. 
But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter, through all of his experiences, including the one we just read, saw Jesus as a cornerstone for those who believe, but as a stumbling stone for those who, like the Sanhedrin, don't believe. But most important, he's the living stone who gives us the ability to be living stones built into a new temple of God if we rely and trust in him. And if the living stone, while perfect, had to rely on his father in times of trial, as we remember Jesus in Gethsemane, then how much more is that true for the living stones? I think Mark's point to the church to whom he writes, the church in Rome, who's undergoing persecution, and maybe to us as well, is that we must be aware of our human weakness and absolutely dependent on God. In that way, we kind of need to be like the Apostle Paul. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul let them in on a little secret. He said, I have this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. I have this thorn in the flesh. And I asked constantly that God would, would release me from it, that God would get rid of that. Maybe it got in the way of his ministry. Maybe it got in the way of his life in other ways. But Paul says, after all that praying, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Peter came to that realization that it was not in his strength as Rocky that he was going to assist Jesus, that he was going to stand up for Jesus, but it was in his weakness, ultimately, that God would be strong through him. And he continued to be strong through Peter throughout his ministry. Is this the self-awareness and the God-dependence that, that we living stones have learned? Perhaps through going through our own furnaces? Will we rely on the solid rock, enabled by him to be rock-solid followers? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being a rock, a rock for us, a rock that stayed strong before the cross and on the cross and walking out of the tomb so we might be in relationship with the Father once again because you took our sin, all the sin of the world upon yourself and died for it. We can't imagine what strength that took on your part, but we ask that you would give us the strength that we need to face the trials of life. Or, as with the Apostle Paul, allow us in our weakness to feel your strength. Allow us in our weakness to be the way that you show your strong to our community and to our world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.